As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, hello. From The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello. And from the square ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price if you want to read everything Phil writes about and enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around. You will also get ad-free versions of all our podcasts for less than £1 a week. Go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up and enjoy The Athletic throughout 2021. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. First part of the show, then we talk football, or at least try to. Uh, a week of mixed results, but some costly defensive moments aside, two really good performances all in all, I thought. What do you make of it, Phil? Good enough results as well. We we said beforehand, all of us, that we thought, I think you predicted four points um, from the two games. I think we all agreed that three points would be, would be very, very good. Two points would be decent enough. Probably went the opposite way to... to to what I expected, I I wasn't fancying too much from Leicester on Sunday, but I thought Everton might be there for the beating uh, last night at, at Elland Road. But I don't think necessarily one performance was better than the other. I think the issue against Everton was that the, the two goals conceded in the first half were so cheap that it left Leeds chasing the game from that point onwards, and they were unlucky not to to chase, like unlucky not to get to the point of taking something from it. But it it becomes more and more difficult as you go up the leagues to get away with with moments like that. At Leicester, what really jumped out to me at Leicester more than anything was the way in which in the second half and the first 15, 20 minutes of it, Leicester went to a back three and, and were very dominant in possession, had a lot of the ball. But Leeds kind of, they, they shed the sort of bravado or, or ego that you might have expected in, in trying to go punch for punch with Leicester. And they were really sensible and really clever in keeping the shape and, and keeping it tight, giving Leicester as few chances as possible and and kind of realising that for the period in which Leicester were on top, they were going to have to be really disciplined. And because they did that, it put them in the position to, to pick Leicester off with, with two absolutely superb goals. I mean, we asked Bielsa afterwards, was that the best performance of the season? And, and he said, no, I, I think we, we play better at, at Aston Villa. Personally, I think Everton away just about beats Leicester. But I think it's I think it's second to that. My feeling with the, the game at Villa was that 
once Bamford scored the first goal of his hat-trick, it, it seemed to burst Villa's bubble completely. It felt to me, as well as Leeds were playing, like Villa really threw the towel in in the last half hour. Whereas with Leicester and Everton, they were you know they were coming right to the end of the game. They, they were still going as Leicester were in, in injury time. And that, to my mind, is, is second to Everton in the list of, of top results this season. And unlucky last night, I, I thought they should have had something from it. It's quite easy to see why they didn't get anything from it. But it's just another example of them competing, I think, really strongly with with teams who've been established for a while now. I think my exact line was, heart says four points, head says three, and we got three. So can I claim that as a victory? I think I probably can. I think given the context of the game and the opponent, I think Leicester was probably the slightly better win overall. What do you reckon, Michael? I mean, Leicester have been in great form, haven't they? they were, uh, they've had a, a slight look of a team making a title push for uh, for a few weeks now. So... I think the 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 one factor in there is that Jamie Vardy didn't play. I think if you put Vardy into the mix there, it's a much tougher game. I think Perez, while he's he's just about all right, he's he's a far easier striker to play against than Vardy. Someone someone who's always on the move and who always has a goal threat about them. I just didn't get that from Perez, and I think maybe that was a slight difference with Everton yesterday in that Cavett Lewin obviously got his goal, and he was he was hard work for Cooper and Stroke to handle because his his physical presence was difficult. I think the Leicester game could have could have changed on the on Vardy's presence, but a great performance overall. And, and two teams that, in truth, are above the level we were aiming to compete at this year. Mm. They're, they're kind of in that next echelon up, aren't they? We were we were looking to beat teams like Newcastle and Palace this year and, and finish in that outside the relegation places, just about comfortable kind of zone. And to be competing with these teams who are long established top half sides is is encouraging. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, and mind you, the first Leicester game absent of uh, of Calvin Phillips, so you could argue it's one that to a certain extent at Ellen Road. So, you know, swings and roundabouts and all that. But talk to me about the defending against Everton, Phil, because uh, those goals were cheap, weren't they? Uh, and we still seem to have a bit of a problem with defending set pieces. Yeah, Luke Aileen was interviewed afterwards and he said, look, it's my mistake for the corner. I should have had Calvert-Lewin covered at the back post and it was it was sloppy and, and you know, I, I take take the blame for that. And, and he said, and, and I, I think he's right about this, he said that he felt, that Leeds defending of set pieces had improved from the point at which it seemed to be, you know, really endemic and, and almost a sort of weekly occurrence conceding from them. And the, the problem for Leeds at set pieces is that they're likely to be weak to some extent permanently because aerially they're just not a strong side. If, if you analyse them closely and, and analyse that particular aspect of the game, they're not a dominant team and, and they're not, it's not a side or a squad that's filled with players who are particularly strong when it comes to, to aerial battles. And I mean, in, in some respects, it's purposeful. You know, Bielsa prefers defenders who can play with the ball. He prefers defenders who are really mobile and can bring possession out from the back. It's not to say that he disregards aerial prowess completely, but I think you saw, I mean, as I always say, there was more to Janssen leaving for Brentford than and purely tactical reasons. Um, you know, it was, there was a fair amount of politics in the background there too. But I think the exchange of Janssen for, for White, as happened that summer, was a really clear pointer to the type of centre-back that Bielsa wants to have. And, and while White was reasonably good in the air, he, he wasn't particularly impressive in the way that Janssen could be. But his all-round skill set and, and you know his, his ability as a footballer was superior to Janssen's. And that is one of the reasons why Leeds were such a good side in the Championship last year. The first goal was just odd all round. I mean, it, it wasn't a particularly difficult cross. It was a decent cross in from the left from, from Digne. But for Rafinha, it, you know, there was the ability to cut that out. And it just seemed as if everybody froze in the middle. I thought 
Melier had a chance to come for that. It wasn't right down his throat, but it was kind of in, in his channel. And the defenders all rather stood and looked at each other as as Sigurdsson ran in and and you know slotted it slotted it home. So they they will get criticised for the defending. The defensive record has not been good this season. Although I do think you have to constantly see it in the context of the injuries and and the fact that some of the players, you know, Cock and Urenti in particular, who who would have a good chance of playing, and one of them would certainly play on the right side of defence. Both have have been injured for quite substantial periods of time, but. I don't think a goal like that really points to structural issues. It just seemed like a, a moment in which everybody was asleep. And and as for the second, that I think is just something that's going to be a, a bit of a recurring theme because it's been a recurring theme for as long as Bielsa has been head coach. It feels right. I can I can accept the set-piece goal because it is something we're going to struggle on. But the first one, it was strike, first of all, could have blocked the cross. It felt like he kind of was hanging back. And then it felt like when the cross comes in, even though it's not Cooper's man, Cooper's man wasn't anywhere to be seen. So... I feel like it sounds old fashioned, but I feel like I almost want him to just put his name on it and just boot it clear rather than it seemed that they were both just leaving it for each other. And in the end, him and Dallas just ran into each other and left him in absolutely tons of space. Yeah. I mean, you know, mobile ball playing defenders who also have the physicality to deal with set pieces, they're going to cost big money or time to develop if you want to get both out of uh, out of the existing lead squad. So I guess we're just going to have to suck these things up for a bit. Um, you mentioned Rafinha there, actually, Phil. Uh, what price Rafinha now? Good question. Well, I'm I'm planning to write about Rodrigo for the weekend because we're halfway through the season and he obviously was record signing in the summer and I know he's picked up this this groin injury, which we're still waiting to hear actually exactly how long he's going to be out. The press conference was cut short last night at a point where a, a few of us were, were trying to ask that question. Um, Ancelotti was just needing to get in, in the room to, to do his before Everton headed off. But it, even though he's injured, I think it's still a good point at which to assess how he's done so far and, and how it's gone for him. But it does permanently feel at the moment as if it's Rafinha who's the, the new signing that's shining. And I know that he's fit and the, the other three aren't. But I think even in the, the spells that the others have been able to play, particularly Koch and, um, and Rodrigo, they haven't been able to match Rafinha's impact. I mean, £70 million from Ren and you know, even a, a, a while ago, we were saying that that, that looked, even at first sight on of, of what we'd seen of him, that, that it could be extremely good value. I, I suspect Leeds would probably double the money or thereabouts if they were to to sell him tomorrow. I mean, just to go back to something that Michael was talking about, the, the absence of Vardy for Leicester on Sunday, it was a definite factor. And, and it's interesting, actually, because it, it makes you wonder how Leicester are going to deal with this when it comes to the point where Vardy goes over the hill and is no longer a, a sort of top Premier League centre forward, which you know can't be a million miles away given his age. But um, we did some analysis at the start of the week about you know which players are the hardest runners, which forwards are, are the hardest runners in the Premier League when it comes to sprints. You know how how far do they sprint? How many bursts are they, they able to put together over ninety minutes? And both, unsurprisingly, both um, Rafinha and, and Jack Harrison scored extremely highly. A lot of long sprints, but a, a lot of busts during the games as well. So it, it kind of fits with the, what you see with the eye of both being quite explosive and, and both being quite dangerous when it comes to defences dealing with them. Vardy's in that group as well. And, and actually, so is Patrick Bamford, who, despite appearances, I think, I suspect people don't look at him as a particularly mobile forward, but he is according to the stats. They all fall in... in what you would consider to be a very sort of positive quadrant when you split it up into four. Perez is miles away, further down the list, not many um, 
not many bursts during the game, doesn't cover much distance when he does sprint. And I think that absolutely jumped out on Sunday. There just wasn't the same threat in that number nine position as, as there had been with Vardy at Ellen Road back in November. But Rafinha, yeah, I mean, to have been injured on Sunday and to have looked to us like he'd pulled a thigh muscle or something like that, and then to play on Wednesday and to run to the extent that he did, I mean, he was... It was funny because Richarlison, to me, looked like he was almost out of, out on his feet after about 20, 30 minutes last night. I'm not quite sure what's going on with him, but he was in a huff when he came off the pitch. He was throwing his coat about. He never, ever got involved. Rafinha, I mean, he was definitely out on his feet by injury time, but was still going, was still running. And he's rapidly, rapidly becoming the inspiration in this team. It feels as if everything that's good about Leeds is going through him at the moment, another goal for him, you know, a, an assist, a great assist down at Leicester as well. Yeah, what price, Rafinha? I, I think you'd be talking £30 million plus now. I will say this, Richarlison, at, at tw- what, twice the price he was, depending on which uh, source you believe, it's somewhere between 35 rising to £50 million for Richarlison. So even if it is only, you know, twice as much they've paid for him as we paid for Rafinha, it feels like we've probably had uh, Ren's pants down a little bit in that transfer. It's going to take time and some cash but you could argue I guess from the evidence of the Everton game anyway that one thing that Leeds lack is game changers on the bench so it's probably worth having a little um, chat about that about how you felt the subs did uh, because they didn't well they did fine I guess did they do enough is the question it's difficult in the absence of certain players so obviously Rodrigo missing changes things to an extent and it was it was far more of a I guess perfunctory midfield, Phillips, Mateus Cleek and, and Stuart Dallas. I actually think it's a good midfield three, that. But Rodrigo gives you that bit extra, little bit of extra craft, little bit of extra finesse when, when he plays well. What's probably interesting me more at the moment, and you're right, I think the, the impact subs are lacking to a degree. And, and this is why you need not so much... I mean, I, I'm loath to say this because I've, I've criticised other managers for, for saying this or people saying this about other managers but this is why you need several seasons or a, a run of transfer windows to, to turn from the squad you come up with to a squad that can seriously compete because first of all you have to address you know in, in your first window a, a handful of positions unless you want to gut the team com- completely and then when you move on to your your next window or your next summer window you find as leads are for example that perhaps a left back would be good and a bit more cover in midfield would be helpful and then at some point you want to to look at your bench and there was a noticeable difference I thought between Everton's bench last night and, and Leeds bench you know you had Jenkins on the Leeds bench and Creswell and somebody was making the point that you know exactly a year ago they were playing in the, the FA Youth Cup with the under 18s um, Everton had you know as an, an example Rodriguez there who was able to come on and, and also Josh King who they'd taken from Bournemouth and some of that to an extent is down to Bielsen and the fact that going back right to the start of this, he, he wanted his squad to be fairly lean and to be fairly trim. And he was saying that again on Monday, you know, 18 senior professionals, ideally, with about four of the, the best under-23s to support it. But yeah, to, to come back to the hierarchy, this is this centres around Pablo Hernandez for me, really, because, you know, for as long as we can remember now, Hernandez has been the game changer. He's been the game changer when he's been on the pitch. He's been the game changer as he was in those eight games at the end of last season when he was coming off the bench. But he's by no means at the moment the player that Bielsa is going for first. Tyler Roberts it, it seems to be number one off the bench when it comes to, to trying to mix it up. And, you know, I, I think in circumstances 12 months ago, like last night's at Ellen Road, you would have expected Hernandez to have had far more than 12 minutes 
Um, and the 12 minutes he, he had last night wasn't really a, a huge period in which he had an, an awful lot of opportunity to change the game. But beyond that, how how it would have altered significantly, how you would have given Leeds some really serious extra threat in, in that those dying moments to, to dig a draw out of that, or potentially a win, because I actually thought if it had gone 2-2, Everton would have, would have wobbled a little more. It isn't quite there. And it's understandable that it isn't quite there because they literally been promoted you know six months ago um not not much more than that but yeah you, you can see reasons really why it is that that although they're in mid-table and they deserve to be in mid-table I I always felt that the talk of you know a, a kind of unexpected challenge for European qualification was was pretty unrealistic the one high value sub we have got is Costa who just looks completely lost at the moment I watched him in the under 23s and he he looked fairly poor in that as well what's what's going on with him at the moment I don't know what to make of Costa. I thought he was very disappointing down at Crawley, which was the sort of game you would have expected him to shine in. And I think the concerning thing, given the cost of him, you know, he was 15, 16 million pounds coming in from Wolves, is that it's going to be extremely difficult for him to play himself into form, given that there is, at the moment, zero chance of him starting ahead of a fit Rafinha. I mean, Bielsa plays Harrison consistently and, and almost without fail. Uh, I mean, if, if you go through Harrison's stats, he's not far off Mateus Cleek's stats for the number of, of minutes that he's played under Bielsa. And more to the point, he's never injured, never seems to be injured, never seems to pick up suspensions. He's just always there on the left-hand side. <laughs> yes, Careful. I, I, know, I know. So if you want to just um, pencil in the one to watch uh, for Monday night against Palace, that would be great. But Rafinha on the other side, Rafinha is going to play and... You cannot at the minute see any scenario other than him being injured or suspended in which he he wouldn't be in the team. So that doesn't give Costa a great opportunity to play his way back into form. What we're seeing from Costa is barely, to my mind, even justifying him getting much of a chance as a substitute at the moment. I thought down at Leicester, in the, the very short period he was on the pitch, he gave the ball away, made no, you know, no great impact. And again, last night, I, I did. I did notice Hernandez against Everton. He was trying to get on the ball. He was trying to play those passes. There was one lovely killer ball through to Bamford, which Bamford just couldn't quite bring under control. And there, and there were stray passes as well. And I think we'll we'll talk more about um, Bamford in in part two of this about Hernandez. Sorry, in in part two of this. But you know, you you were aware of his presence, whereas with Costa, it didn't feel like Costa was out there. It didn't feel like he was in the thick of it or, or that he was ever going to catch your eye. So what's going on with him? I don't think anything specific, aside from the fact that he isn't playing well. And and as I say, it's one thing playing well when you're a, a player of you know intrinsically low transfer value. But when you're a player who's come in at that sort of price, you, you do need to be offering more. Because put it this way, if Leeds were to cut the losses on him at some point, in this form, it would be very, very difficult to get the money back. I think it doesn't help him when you compare him to Rafinha, who he plays like a man possessed. He plays like his life depends on it. He, there seems to be such determination bordering on anger at all times with everything that he does. Whereas Costa just looks, it looks completely like one paced all the time. Like he doesn't have that same level of focus or determination that Rafinha does. And it's almost got to a point now with him, I think, where he's become a bit of a joke. If you are to believe what is said on Twitter and, you know, let's not take that as uh as gospel or, or the overriding school of thought, but when he gets the ball and, and he you know inevitably loses it these days, it, it doesn't come as a surprise. And the reaction online is always one of, well, you know, there we go again. It feels like something needs to change for him. I'm pleased that you mentioned the sort of angry factor with um, with 
Rafinha because back when he joined, I did a joint piece with Jack Lang, who's a specialist on on all things South American, and and he spoke to um, a coach who'd worked with Rafinha in in Brazil before he came over to Portugal, and he said that that was one of one of his biggest traits was the fact that football did make him angry. You know, things that went wrong would frustrate him. He, he would get himself sent off get a second yellow card for catching the ball if somebody misplaced the cross or if, if you know, if, if it wasn't falling as, as it, it seemed to. And it's funny because that, to me, I'm not seeing any issue with his temperament at all. You know, it's if there's anger there, it's not anger in a sort of, dare I say, Alioski way, you know, in which the, you kind of wonder whether the 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 loose cannon is going to come out and, it, and he's going to lose it to some extent. But there's there's definite fire in his football, which I think to some extent, it's perhaps the issue with Costa at the moment. I'm not seeing the same intensity or the same... I hate the word desire because it implies that, that people don't care or, or aren't bothered. But you, you see in Rafinha constantly this permanent insistence on trying to make things happen and, and getting the ball running, you know, taking risks, taking taking chances. It's not the same with Costa. It, it just isn't there in the same way. And I don't know if that's going to be a permanent thing. I don't know if that's going to be a temporary thing. It seems fairly apparent to me that Bielsa does like him and Bielsa sees something in him because, you know, Costa's been pretty regular under Bielsa. He's been he's been fairly heavily involved. What I think would have been very interesting against Everton was had Rafinha not been fit, what would Bielsa have done on the right hand side? Would he have gone for Costa there? Would he have gone for Hernandez there? Would he have tried to mix it up in some other way so he could get Roberts on the, the field? It's hard to say, really, because I, I don't see that Costa or Hernandez are particularly floating his boat at the moment. But I, I guess it would have had to have been one of them. So despite the midweek defeat to Everton, we have moved up in the table thanks to um, Southampton's shambles at Old Trafford. Slap bang in the middle, 29 points. So far, so good. Very much so. My feeling now is that two more wins makes Leeds safe. And I, I don't base that on 36 points being a particularly high Premier League total. But I do base it on the bottom three looking like all of them are going to struggle to to get past the 30-point mark. It's not to say that they won't, but the gap's opening up. And I think all three are in real danger of, of being left behind and, and cut loose um, before we, we get past Easter. But I think we're going to say the same thing every week, aren't we? That, that it's been a really good season so far. And you can pick at the defending. You can also mitigate because of the, the injuries that have been there. But it's enjoyable and football's supposed to be enjoyable and, and I don't really know what else anybody would have asked for from a team who've been newly promoted. I think this is about as good as it gets. Hi, I'm James McNicholas and I'm here to tell you about the latest series of Beyond the Headline, the making of Big Sam. If I did anything wrong, why did they pay me off? You see, Sam Allardyce seemingly can't quit English football and English football can't quit him. But Why? Why does football keep coming back to Sam Allardyce? To answer those questions and many more, you'll hear from former Hull City manager Phil Brown. He didn't mind having the crack, he didn't mind having the banter, but he would he would prove his way was the right way. Dundee United manager Mickey Mellon. I signed for Sam Allardyce, really. And of course, Father Joe Young, owner of Limerick FC, where the Big Sam story began. Now I said, Sam, this is the ultimate goal. Now I'll show you what we have <laughs> and I brought him up and he said Jesus Father Joe are you serious I said look nothing is impossible to those who believe 
You'll learn about his time in America at the Tampa Bay Rowdies, the way he revolutionised English football, and of course, the England debacle. You can hear it all now and ad-free via the Athletic app. Just search for Beyond the Headline now. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Well, normally the transfer window slams shut at the end of the month, but it, it felt like it was just uh, clipped very peacefully onto the nightlock and uh, the key was removed and it was uh, it was left alone and nobody really noticed. It was a very low-key transfer window and Leeds, as expected, didn't make a move and to be honest nobody really did can you can you remember a January like this one no I, I was saying in a piece earlier this week that they were saying themselves um, directors and, and senior staff at Leeds um, on, on Sundays they were leaving Leicester that it's the quietest January they can remember and probably the, the quietest January they're ever going to see but it didn't really open did it I know there was a, a little bit done at, at certain clubs but even even your sides who were, are in trouble and, and really need something right now didn't go mad. The expenditure didn't didn't go over the top. Liverpool took genuinely until the last day to do anything about the, the centre-back problem, which had kind of been staring them in the face, but then became worse once, once Matic got um, got injured. And yeah, for, I mean, Leeds said at the, the outset they, they weren't going to do anything, that there was nothing planned. Um, I think financially, when we spoke to Radrazani, he was pretty clear in saying that the the summer window and the the commitment of 100 million pounds to the deals that they did then meant that there wasn't actually much scope to sign players in January. I think they they've always got their eyes open in case anything comes up that they feel like they they shouldn't miss. But the you know in, in reality that there is a limit and there's only so far you you can push things. And I actually think it's been very sensible. I think they've they've avoided being sucked into what can be a, a bit of a temptation to recruit and recruit and recruit window after window at a time when they don't really need to. I mean, they're, they're very, very close to to being safe in the Premier League. I don't think there's any doubt that they're going to get there. So if they've got plans for the summer, which they definitely have, and, and it seemed as if Alter was working on them through January more than anything else, it does make sense to my mind to wait until that point and to do it properly, you know, do it properly with a bit more time, with months rather than weeks to to properly address what you what you want to do. And if you pick through the Premier League as a whole, it, it feels to me as if January more and more is becoming a window that you use if you're in trouble or if you have injuries that are causing you real grief. Other than that, it just doesn't seem to be a time when clubs of, of any note want to do anything. It's evidently not a great market. It's not a time when you get good value for your money. And I wonder going forward what what the game will do with the January window. Maybe it will just sit there and it will become a, a bit of an afterthought that is, is a sort of non-event, you know, for 
in the years ahead, you know, as opposed to what we've been used to seeing over the years behind us. Jim White um, is sobbing when you say this. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I feel bad about putting him out of business, but the summer window is the one, isn't it? That's where you have to do your key business. That's where Leeds tried to do their key business last year. And it's worked for them irrespective of the fact that, that some of the players have been injured and, and haven't played too much. As a squad, they've been more than adequate for the Premier League. So they can afford to wait until next summer. And I think it was the right thing to do not to, to jump on anything this time round. I get the sense that Chelsea will always make the uh, the January transfer window um, worthwhile. They'll they'll panic every season or two and drop 50 million on somebody because they've they've changed manager again or, or something like that. The phrase that Radrazani used that you mentioned there in, in that press conference after the 49ers took their increased shareholding, he said financially exposed, which was uh, which yes. was interesting. So the club doesn't want to stretch itself too much. I think by and large, the Leeds fan base, happy to know that Orta's getting on with things with a, you know, a view to the, to the summer window. You wonder, in terms of financial exposure, the French TV deal has completely collapsed. They haven't managed to resell the TV rights, which leaves a massive gap in the finances, you know, it's something we picked up on some weeks ago, actually, when this thing uh, looked like it was in jeopardy. And again, you know, you look a lot of the clubs in Spain, not in great financial shape. So will there be opportunities within the Premier League, which has suffered financially, but seems more financially robust thanks to the TV deal, opportunities for Premier League clubs and clubs like Leeds to uh, to make hay in the in the summer window. And, and an eye particularly on France and, and the links to Romain Perraud, who's the left back at Brest. Well, it was, it was suggested to me in the summer that one of the reasons why Ren was so willing to take the money for Rafinha was in part because he wanted to go, but but more to the point because actually it was bringing in a, a fairly chunky amount of income. I think you, you can argue that they've they've undersold themselves badly by selling him for £70 million, certainly judging by what we've seen so far. But there was just that feeling that even though they were going into the Champions League and, and even though they're in about as good a position as they've they've ever been in, that they were potentially feeling a bit exposed. And, and you know, all, all doesn't seem to be particularly well in French football at the moment. I, I don't think over there it's become fire sale territory. You know, I, I don't think it's at the point where clubs are feeling forced to sell at any price or, or pressure to get players out the door by by any means. But it is making them slightly vulnerable. And, I, and there does seem to be a lot of focus on that market at the moment. I mean, it, it sounds very much to me from from what I've been told that a left-back's going to be high up the, the agenda at Leeds in the summer. And I personally think it, personally think it, it should be. It's a position that way before Bielsa's time and even before Radrazani's has felt like an, an issue constantly. I think with the exception of the, the period where Charlie Taylor came in there from the academy, it, it, it seemed to be constant chopping and changing signings that didn't work. You know, you, you could find a Luke Ayling who would sit nicely at right back, but finding somebody to, to occupy the left side of defence for any extended period of time was a challenge. But um, Romain Perraud is he's a player at um, Stade Brest in, in France, and is starting to become one of the leading left backs over there. I think seen by by many people as the best um, left back or one of them in in France's top division. And we did a, a an assessment of him um, for the piece that I, I wrote on Tuesday, looking at what his strengths were, looking at what his weaknesses were, and and trying to see whether or not the strengths would would match with the type of player Ailing is and the type of player you'd expect Bielsa to want in that role. And I think. It's very clear from from the performance data that he's a really attacking left back who is good at creating chances, um, good at coming up with shots himself, a threat going forward, but also really good at employing the press, good as part of a team who like to press aggressively. And you know, on those sort of basic 
pointers alone, you can see why Leeds are very, very interested in him. I don't think they'll be the only side who are. I think there'll be bundles of interest in him. And he has just signed a new contract as well, run into 2025. But I would suspect that Stadbrest are, are doing that to protect themselves as much as, as anybody else. And, and as Leeds found with Rafinha at Wren, it wasn't that difficult to persuade him there. I think I think they're in a strong position at the moment, Leeds, when it comes to selling themselves. And staying mid-table in the Premier League certainly helps, doesn't it? If you can you can sell that particular dream to somebody. And Perrault, actually, he ticks a lot of boxes, doesn't he? 23 years old, which is the same age as Rafinha. He's in the right sort of uh, ballpark for age. Former under-21 international, as you said in the article, his stats sort of reflect the type of player that Leeds are after. Because it seems they do a lot of kind of this, this money ball stuff now with the uh, with the data analysis. So, you know, given his age, there's a great likelihood that his value will increase as well. Yeah, resale value. And it touches on what we said about Leicester. You know, part of the reason their model has been so good is because they've been quite skillful at picking up players for relatively low prices or low prices in comparison to what they're, they're later sold for. And it's a, it, it's a very, very good way to substantial transfer funds if, if you can do it. It's not easy. And given the competition in the market, it, you find that everybody else is trying to do exactly the same. But if Perot turns out to be, if they get him and he turns out to be an exceptional left-back, then again, you would like to think that at 23, in two, three, four years' time, his, his value kind of, kind of shot up. And I think, you know, I'm absolutely convinced at the moment that Leeds would make a profit on Rafinha if they, they were to sell him immediately, which was no plan to. But, you know, if, if that... It, Hypothetically, if that was to happen, I think they, they would make they would make money. Um, so, in when you're in this this position that they are, and when you're in that band of clubs who are not elite in the Premier League, i.e., going for the title or, or going for Champions League qualification, then this is the sensible way to operate, and and I think the the best way to to operate. And I think it gives you, I mean, it's not a secret this, but it gives you an indication as well of how far out your recruitment teams, not just at Leeds, but other clubs as well, plan transfers. You know, as I say, they're, they're looking at this in January and rather than doing it in January, it's planned for the summer. And that, that again, is what you have to do. You have to almost be one step ahead of yourself constantly. We'd have to check this one with um, Football Clichés, actually another uh, athletic podcast. But is this becoming a transfer saga now? Let's talk central midfield and Rodrigo de Paul. Will we finally get him? Because Andy Brassel was talking on... Uh, on TalkSport, who's a South American football expert, seems to think that we will. Yeah, he, he knows his stuff, does Andy, and he's, a, he's good on, on European football um, in general. I, I think, I suspect what he was saying reflected the fact that DePaul definitely, definitely wants to come here. And, you know, we, we know that already from speaking to people close to him, but you know that yourselves from the fact that he was replying to at least one of your tweets back in the summer transfer window and was liking various tweets about him coming here. He, he hasn't he hasn't hidden it much. Um, and we were joking earlier in the week, you and I, Dan, about the, the idea of, just for the sake of argument, Calvin Phillips, you know, constantly joshing with supporters of another club who are asking him to sign for them and, you know, almost fanning the flames. And I'd love to know what the fan base at Udinese make of, of the way DePaul is. I mean, I suspect they're quite realistic in knowing that the chances are a player that good is is going to move on. Is it a saga? I mean, the, the, the issue with that is that Leeds have never really gone anywhere with this. I mean, it, it was mooted in the summer very briefly, but it you know the valuation was wrong for them. They didn't get heavily involved. They didn't really spend much time trying to argue about valuation. It wasn't, I guess, to, to put it a different way, they didn't act on DePaul in the way I would have expected them to if they were 100% serious about him. You know, it, it all felt a little bit... Um, 
the, the interest felt a little bit flimsy to me and, and a little bit artificial. Whether or not they come back round this time, I, I really don't know because they, they didn't do much with them in January at all. Um, I mean, they, they, they really didn't try to, to step that up again. But they need to put players like that, don't they? I, I actually think for what it's worth that he'd be a good fit. You know, I, I think they do need options in midfield. I think they're, they're late there. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, all joking apart about the ongoing flirtation uh, with Rodrigo de Paul, his stats are actually fantastic this season. He's uh, one of the top players for like you know progressive forward runs and all the various uh, metrics that people use. And and I mention that because uh, following him very closely on Twitter, and he's constantly retweeting stuff like that, basically showcasing his own ability. So somebody of that mold, and you know, in the context of his potential price, if we are to believe that. Udinese were looking for, you know, 35 to 40 million euro, which is slightly less when you, you know, translate it into pounds or whatever. Um, if you could get him in the summer, given that he's a current Argentina international and all the rest of it and his age and all that, 27 to 30 million pounds, maybe a shade over 30. Surely that starts to look like good value when you've got a second season of Premier League money in the bank and a bit more, uh, you know, surety about your position. I think there's an argument for that. Um, the, part of the problem last summer would have been even aside from anything else that at 35 million that was on top of already having done Rodrigo and and others I mean I go back to what I said before which is that Leeds were not particularly giving him the, the come on with this and I think everything has to be seen or, or considered with Bielsa in mind you know a, a, any move for DePaul is, is going to be done or not with, with his say so and Regardless of what the recruitment department think, or I know Radrazani has liked tweets about Rodrigo de Paul as well. I don't know if that was accidental or deliberate or, or whatever else, but you know, it would be assuming Bielsa is here next season, it, it would be his decision, you know, and it would be his his choice. It, it strikes me as odd that he wouldn't want de Paul unless he felt like it was one player too many in his squad because of the fact. I mean, you can go. Opta, for example, very, very reliable when it comes for, to performance data. And they they have DePaul in the strongest um, Serie A lineup this season. Uh, there's there's no question that his performances have been very, very good. And, and I think he, again, could be a really sound investment. It's just so difficult to tell um, whether or not this actually has legs. I mean, you, you wrote on the podcast notes, it feels like now or never for DePaul. I, I would agree with that. I think if in the summer... Leeds are cold on it and Leeds don't get involved in it and give it a swerve again and, and look elsewhere, then you can assume that they were never really 100% serious about doing that one in particular. And there'll be reasons for that. It won't just be money. It'll be a case of how well he fits and what it is that Bielsa is after. But I do expect them to make additions to the midfield um, when the summer window comes around. And, and it's inevitable, isn't it, that he's he's going to be mentioned and he's going to be speculated about because that link is has been there and has never properly died a death. But I think at this rate, he'll have you in his front garden, won't he? <laughs> Not if the judge has anything to say about it. <laughs> um, but, you know, the underlying point here is that we need to get some additional resources in there as competition for click. And it feels like uh, Pablo Hernandez is moving more and more towards the periphery of the squads because he's getting used less and less. Off the back of the Everton game, actually, and, and we've seen him wanting to use Roberts ahead of Pablo recently. Is that is that an eye on the future, or is it the case that he actually fancies Roberts more in the here and now? I think there's a bit of both, if I'm being honest. One of the things I've found good, and there isn't much, but about the you know the the lockdown and, and the absence of crowds is what you can hear from the touchline, and it must be obvious to everybody, even watching on telly, the amount 
to which you'll find from Bielsa him shouting, move, move at players, you know, move Roberts, move Cleek, move Harrison. It's that he's wanting, you know, constant activity and constant rotation, players putting them in posi- themselves in positions where, you know, they, they can do damage and they can they can stretch the opposition. And I think it's probably fair to say that Roberts is a more mobile player than Hernandez. I mean, you can tell that Roberts is kind of ahead in the pecking order on the basis that he seems to be Bielsa's first go-to sub at the moment. And with Hernandez, I mean, he, 12 minutes against Leicester, against Everton, sorry, was not a huge period um, in which he was likely to change things. And his minutes have been pretty intermittent this season. He's, he's only started two league games. And I just wonder, I mean, it, it became clear right towards the end of the, the transfer window that, that Castellon, the, the Spanish second division club, which is where Hernandez started as an academy player and is where he's now a part owner, that they were quite keen to, to take him last month. And I think had reached the point, there's always been this discussion over there about might Hernandez finish his career here, you know, that sort of slight fairy tale ending for them and potentially for, for him as well. But it's been unrealistic up until recently because he was playing too well. And I was over there in 2019 and they all said, you know, technically he's still at the sort of level where he could play in the Premier League or he could play in La Liga in Spain. So the idea of him going to the third division as Castellon were at that point was, you know, fanciful really. It was was never going to happen. But he's down to 18 months on his contract now. He's, he's 36 in April uh, he, he's not playing a huge amount and uh, it doesn't feel to me as if that's going to change anytime rapidly. You never can tell with them. You know, you, you never, you can never say with somebody that good and somebody that talented that they aren't going to have a sudden burst and a, a sudden spike in, in form. But is he going to play enough to have a spike in form? Is it realistic for him to be able to influence games in a league as, you know, as, as athletic and as, as physically strong as the champion, as the the Premier League, when he's playing so little, it doesn't feel as if suddenly he's the the player who's going to change everything and the player who's going to inspire everything. It feels a little bit as if that baton is passing to others, you know, to to an extent Rodrigo, but even more so people like Rafinha and, and Bamford up front. So with Hernandez, it, it's hard to see where this is going. But I I wrote about him this morning after the Everton game, and it. It does seem to me as if we're saying back, goodbye to him this season. It feels as if this might be the last hurrah, and I'll be very interested to see what happens with him when the summer window comes around. I think at 36 as well, you know your career is starting to come to an end, and maybe you then start to prioritise, you know, your family first, and you know you're looking at the next stage of your life. That's probably going to like feed into it a little bit. And you know, the thing that added fuel to this fire was uh, the fact that Mar Garcia, that's that's Pablo's wife. On Twitter, she published a photo of Castellon on the morning of the transfer deadline, which seemed to be, you know, a very clear or about as clear as a, a gesture as you're going to get that they want to go home. And it's always been the plan to go home as well, hasn't it? They've got very strong roots there. I, I spoke to Ma when I did the big piece on Hernandez and Castellon, and she said, you know, he's awards where he's super proud of his roots, and and he he definitely is. Um, I, I think. At 36, the choices you make are quite delicate when it comes to your playing career now because realistically, his next transfer, if he makes one and if he doesn't retire at Leeds, is going to be his last. You know, it's hard to see him having many more moves in him than that. And also there's the decision about whether you want to risk potentially the last 18 months of your career or, or 12 months when he gets to the summer. Um, it's not to say he couldn't play on longer than that, but if that's how, how it was, 
do you want to spend that not playing or, or not playing very often or, or do you want to get yourself involved with something that for a, a short period of time will, will give you more game time, will give you more exposure, you know, will give you that chance to, to finish off properly. And and I don't know, as, as well, I wonder if the, there'll be that concern that the inactivity could potentially shorten the time that he has left. You know, the, the less he plays, the harder it's going to be to, to play on longer. It's sad, really, and I guess it's it's just football and it's the way of, of all things. And I remember saying after promotion, the moments you have there, the, the, like that, the promotion, the title, that absolute intense buzz when it, it happens, it's kind of there and then it's gone and it's not that you forget about it and it's not that it completely goes from your head and it's not that you can't feel it at all, but you're never going to feel it in quite the same way and, and the one thing that saddens me about Hernandez is that if, if it was to be this summer when he goes if this is to be his last season it seems highly unlikely that he's going to get to play in front of a full house at Leeds again and there aren't you know there aren't always that many players who you want to to send off properly and, and over the years there are a lot of coming in and out of Leeds without really making any impression at all but I think he's one that people would have wanted, you know, just for, for one last time at some stage to, to be able to say goodbye to properly. And it could still happen. He could still be here next year. You might find that the stadiums fill up again. But it's I think it's between the, the number of minutes he's playing, which not high at the moment, and the fact that Bielsa seems to just be going in, in other directions, down other avenues um, when it comes to putting his team together and, and the way he's managing matches, it's just hard to say that this has much in the way of legs left in it. Would the club have to do him a favour, essentially, to let him move there? I'm, I'm guessing be, they wouldn't be able to pay the same sort of wages that we are. No, especially since um, he's, he'll have had an uplift after promotion. Um, all the players going into the Premier League will have had pay rises that have been in their, in their contracts. So he will be on considerably more money, I would think, than a Spanish second division side like Castellon would be able to afford. Um, I mean, they're in a relegation battle at the moment, which makes me wonder if that was perhaps behind them deciding to behind them deciding that they'd, they'd chance their arm last month and see whether it, it could happen. The one difference over there, or, or the one advantage for them, is that because he is part owner of the club, because he's part of the ownership structure, he would almost be negotiating with himself. You know, he, he would almost be... If he wanted the deal to happen, there are ways in which he can make it happen. Because when it comes to the the management and the finance of finances of Castellan, that is his concern. You know, he, he's as involved in that as as many other people, and he's got long term friends in the club. Um, he's got family. His father is also invested in the club, so it makes sense, and you can see how it would how it would add up. And I don't think anybody would begrudge him that. And I think if he wanted to go, people here would probably be pretty philosophical in saying that. At some stage, you, you have to move on from somebody like him. You know, he, he can't, he cannot be your star man indefinitely. But I think it would probably be easier to take that if it wasn't for the fact that Ellen Road is completely deserted and and he's hardly playing. It's the sort of quiet ending that somebody like him doesn't deserve. The sentimental angle is a it's a very strong one, isn't it? It's got a very strong pull because you know before this season started, I almost didn't want the Premier League season to start in a particular way because I was mourning the passing of the promotion because it was so intense. It was so joyful, that release that came after so long and not to mention all the added stresses of, you know, the lockdowns at the time to get that release was absolutely amazing. And I, I kind of, I didn't want to let it go. I think I'm kind of past it now, but it's been very, very tough to do that. I think we had a little glimpse of it when we, even when we saw Barry Douglas, it was a, even though he was a peripheral figure in our promotion to a large extent. I liked him. It still <laughs> felt like, oh, not yet. I'm not ready for this yet. Let, let them all stay for a bit. And obviously Pablo was a, 
he was probably the centre of everything last year, wasn't he? And it, it, it does feel a bit like with with Rafinha in the team, he is he is now the man who makes things happen for us. And, and Pablo maybe isn't where he was, but I don't think I'm yet ready to forget what he's done for us. And the, and the fact that we're in the Premier League is in huge part down to him. There were, if you think about the way he dragged us through games and the journey he went on from being in tears at the end of the Bielsa's first season to to getting us up with the goal at Swansea, there's such a there's such a story there. I think it's something we'll remember for years, and I don't want us to forget it in the short term because we're all excited by Rafinha. Yeah, uh, Swansea was one of the best moments of my whole life, without doubt, and he's the architect of that moment. So, yeah, please don't go. Hey, listen, we're going to get into um, Crystal Palace in a few moments, but before we do, on last week's show, we chatted at length about the 49ers investment, and if you enjoyed that and want to hear more about Leeds United's future with the 49ers, then let me point you in the direction of this. Parag Marate, the president of the 49ers Enterprises and the new Leeds United vice president, spoke with Mark Chapman this week about their plans for Leeds and touched on loads of stuff, including the 49ers move to Levi Stadium in, in 2014 and what they've kind of learned from that and how they can apply it to the upgrades that are coming on uh, on Ellen Road. Details on where you can find this in a moment, but here's a sample. I think right now the goal is to look to see what we could do to modernize Ellen Road within the current footprint. Angus has talked about the West Side about expanding the capacity, because I think you see uh, most of the big dogs in the Premier League have capacities above 50,000, right? And we are hovering around 36. And so I think uh, that's something that we certainly want to be able to see what we could do. You step onto the grounds at Ellen Road, you can feel the competitive advantage that Leeds players have. And you can you can sense why opposing team, away team players don't enjoy playing there because it is such a voracious environment. You don't want to take that away. Trying to figure out how to maximize that. You know, and even with the in the 49ers case, the decibel level and how we set it up for uh, for Levi Stadium is greater than what we had at Candlestick Park. And then actually, in many ways, we move closer to the majority of our season ticket holders. It's a little bit of a misnomer that, that we moved away because we actually moved closer to the majority of our season ticket holders when we moved uh, to Levi Stadium. Uh, so we actually, in totality, made it more convenient and, you know, provided a better experience and all that as well. Everything that you look to do to, to be able to, to modernize it. But again, you have to first show that you belong, that you can stay in the Premier League. You don't want to be uh, this yo-yo club that hangs on by the laces of our shoes, right? We want to be able to show that we can stay. And the longer we can stay, uh, the more you can do because improvements you can make are not just at Allen Road, but we're talking about our training ground. We're talking about our academy. Uh, we're talking about a whole lot more within the football infrastructure that is Leeds. That's Parag Marate talking to Mark Chapman, part of the Business of Sports series, which you can find on the Athletics Ornstein and Chapman podcast. Just search for Ornstein and Chapman in the same place that you got this show. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Athletic. 
Crystal Palace in the Monday night game that is on Sky Sports is this week's fixture. Willifred Zaha, I would quite like him to be out if he has indeed pulled his hamstring in midweek. So he can't, I mean, the pitch is slippy enough. We don't want to see him falling over anymore on the on the Ellen Road turf, do we? You're thinking of him, aren't you? Yeah, without a doubt. I think there's a high likelihood that he will be missing because he, he came off, like you say, hamstring strain which is he'll do well to to shake that off unless it's very very minor. But it they they've got injury problems actually of, of Palace. They've got quite a lot of players missing, and clearly so of Leeds. So you know it's it's kind of six of one and, and half a dozen of another. But um, Schlup, Sacco, MacArthur, McCarthy down there all, all all suffering. Tompkins as well. But Zaha is the one. I mean he he caused quite a bit of havoc against Leeds when they played down at Selhurst Park before Christmas, and he is by a distance their best player. No doubt about that. The pitch was odd actually last night. I mean, it, it was obviously newly laid and it held up It held up as turf so much better than the, the pitch that they've replaced. But it was extremely slippy. I mean, the points of which it, was, it looked a bit like a, like an ice rink. And I, I really do sympathise with the ground staff there because the weather just seems to be consistently horrendous at the moment. I was saying on Twitter, it's been like monsoon season for about three months now. And they had snow before the game, which was covering the pitch. And then downpours during the game and there's expected to be a bit more snow or certainly a bit more rain over the weekend before Palace as well. So it's very, very hard work um, for the for the, the guys who are trying to, to hold it together. But yeah, Zaha, I think if he is missing, it kind of puts a different complexion on Palace who are not looking much like a great side this season anyway. Um, I think that's that's something to look out for. And, and as I say, I suspect it'll be a challenge for him to get himself fit for this. Would we expect Leeds to line up pretty much the same as they started that game against Everton? I think so. We, I say, well, we will get a, a proper update from Bielsa on Rodrigo at some point over the next few days. He was in for his scans at the start of the week. Um, he, he did say on Instagram, um, Rodrigo, that it wasn't major. It was quite a, quite a minor problem, but obviously difficult to know what that means in terms of time scale. I would have thought if it's a, a kind of standard groin strain, you'd probably be looking at a few weeks to a month. So again, unlikely that, that he'll be back for Monday, I would have thought. And and because of that, the no real changes that jump out to you um, from that team, as I say, you've got Costa, you've got Hernandez there, but I think that 11, which Bielsa went for on, on Wednesday against Everton, it, it felt like, it felt like his core team, you know, the core team from the players he had, it felt like his side, as he would imagine it, in his head. And and given that they actually played really well against Everton in the main, I don't see much need to to change things against Palace. And, and the one thing you find with Bielsa is that he very rarely makes personnel changes for tactical reasons, um, i.e. To, to sort of accommodate or to account for different opposition. So even though you you know Everton are not the same side as Palace by any stretch, I, I think it probably will be the same 11. Question for you on that, actually. So let's say when Rodrigo does get fit, who do you think makes way? Do you think it would be Click who would drop out of the side again? Or would he shuffle the pack a little bit like we saw with that substitution against Everton where Gianni Alioski perhaps makes way, uh, Stuart Dallas shuffles into uh, into left back and all that. And, and a quick word about Gianni actually, because it taps into what we were saying there in part two about contracts expiring and people possibly being on the way out because um, Alioski's contract is expiring. He's into the last few months and no sign at the minute of him of him signing one. Does it feel like he's on his way out? I don't know with him. It's hard to say. I mean, Leeds, are, as I was saying, are looking like they're going to go for a left-back in the summer, which obviously calls into question where Alioski would fit. But that's not to say they don't want to keep him. They do. They're, they're talking to him about a new deal. They'd like him to sign one. They're, they're pretty confident, actually, that he will. But there have been 
links to other clubs, particularly Galatasaray in, in the past fortnight or so. And, and Alioski's in a position now where he can negotiate freely with clubs abroad because of his um, contractual situation. It leads down to his last six months. And, and also in a position where he can move in the summer without any form of transfer fees. So in, in that way, he might be quite appealing to, to clubs out there who need somebody in his position. Um, as I say, when, when I speak to Leeds, it still sounds to me as if they think he, he will stick around, as if he will take an extension to his contract. But it's going to depend on the terms of it. And I think probably more than anything, the, the length of it, because he's getting towards the back end of his 20s now and he's got to got to kind of look after himself and, and make the right decision. So we'll see with that. But there was no doubt when we asked Bielsa about it that Bielsa wants him to stay too. You know, that was, was very, very clear. But it will probably be on Alioski's mind that if another left-back comes in, it might not be easy to play. And... With all respect to Alioski, we we need better on the left-hand side of the pitch, don't we? And that's, like I said, I don't want to diminish his contribution whatsoever to, to the side, but there are times when you kind of wince uh, some of the things that he does. Whether it's his, you know, he had that, had that I described it as a lightning in the bottle moment with the volley, didn't he, uh, against Everton. Shame it didn't go in, but a lot of the time we've seen those hit the, uh, hit the roof of the stand. Would have been a heck of a goal, that, though. It really would have been. Made me think of that Paul Scholes volley at, at Bradford, that you know floated corner that you, you hit first time. He, he was very, very unlucky with that. I definitely think they do need better at left-back. It's a different case to Hernandez, but it's the, the reality of the, the game and the business that you can't stand still and, and you can't cling on to existing pillars for forever. You know, Michael was saying you, you don't want to sort of forget everything about Hernandez and for everything to shift before you know shift to attention towards Rafinha, you know, hundred percent. But it's the professional way to act, isn't it? It's the professional way to move forward. Is that you you don't keep relying incessantly on a player like Hernandez who is starting to get to what you know really close to the back end of his career now. You you look for new people. You look for fresh people to carry the carry the weight of the, the pressure of, of the club and, and of the season. And I think that applies at left-back as well. Alioski has always felt to me like a, a bit of a sort of stopgap at left-back. There have been games where he's, he's played well there, games where he's played not so well, but it doesn't ever feel like his out-and-out natural position. And I think the balance to the team and the quality of the team would definitely be helped by having a specialist in that area. Just looking at the fixtures then, and returning to what's immediately at hand, you see the next few with uh, you know Villa at home, Wolves away. Arsenal away and starting with this um, this game against Palace on Monday it's a good opportunity this one against Palace to get those few more points in the bank isn't it and secure the position for uh, for next season because we can all relax a little bit if we um, if we get three points on Monday Would you not say you're relaxed at this stage? Don't be ridiculous Almost I think once we get to 40 we'll be absolutely relaxed but I mean yeah the way the bottom three is looking it is it is looking increasingly difficult for us mm. to mess this up. I, I do tend to agree with what Phil said. Two more wins, I think, will make me feel fine. But then once we get well clear of that, then, yeah, 40 will make me... Uh, it's sunglasses on the beach time, isn't it? It's is 40 points in this uh, in this Premier League with those sides at the bottom end. Um, we, we should be beating Palace. And that I think that's what was frustrating about the game at Selhurst Park earlier on in the season. No, not should be beating because that sounds very, very entitled. No, but you look at where we are and how good we are and how good we've been across the last couple of games despite the defeat against Everton and we should you know really be beating Palace on Monday get those three points then we can we can put one eye in the shades anyway even if not two should certainly be competing with them and I think shouldn't be losing 4-1 to them either Um, I'm still not convinced that it was actually a 4-1 game I think there were there were things that went for Palace on that afternoon that, that, as much as they deserved to win the game, made it look worse than it actually actually was. But they 
they can be very limited. They're not a particularly thrilling side to watch at all. And that seems to be the prevailing mood down there that it hasn't there hasn't been much to much to enjoy to an extent under Hodgson. I think it, it can be a bit bland and it, it can be a little bit flat. But you know, when they have people like Zaha in form, they're, they're dangerous and, and they do from time to time pick up very, very good results. But I'm I'm with you. It's a it's a game at home and admittedly Leeds haven't been as good at home as, as they have away, but game at home against Palace and, and a game before a block of some pretty difficult fixtures actually. Arsenal away won't be won't be simple, neither will Wolves, Villa, West Ham, Chelsea. Sides who have, have been good in patches um, this season and with West Ham in particular have, have been very, very good recently. So I think, you know, if if even Michael is saying that the leads are almost there, then you know that they're pretty much um, pretty much over the line. But there is always that potential because the, the way the games fall for you to, to get into a rut and to get into a little spell where the points start to, to dry up slightly. So I think you beat Palace and, and go over 30 points, you, you really are on the verge at, at that stage and it sets it up quite nicely for a, a pretty calm end to the season. I don't feel like we've let ourselves down very often this year, but I feel like the Palace game was one where we, we didn't give a great account of ourselves. Palace and Leicester, I think those are the two games that jump out. Old, Old Trafford got a bit out of hand, but there was plenty in that game that kind of encouraged you in, in the attacking sense, not not defensively. But like, I, I felt like Leicester was the first time you, you sort of had that Premier League hit. And then Palace felt like the sort of game that Leeds should have had it in them to win. And, and actually it got away from them quite spectacularly. Although, as I say, I don't, I don't think Palace deserved to win 4-1. But I expect Leeds to play better, put it that way, and I think they have played better than that in an awful lot of their games this season. And they're in they're in a good way at the moment. It must be helping, I think, the the fact that they are getting close to the point where they're not having to worry about the bottom three. I don't think Bielsa will slacken off, and I don't think he'd, he'd tolerate that that kind of attitude. But I think for the players, the players' well being and, and their their sort of feeling of confidence and and satisfaction that they'll be they'll be at high ebb at the moment and you can see that in, in the best of the football so yeah absolutely a game that's there to be won and nice to play without you know it's been two and a half years of pressure really hasn't it two years trying to get up and then another six months or whatever of uh, of doing our best to stay in the Premier League so once you've kind of secured that status it it can't hurt to have some of that pressure removed I would uh, I would argue so well, let's let's kick it all off with a, a victory against Palace and what are we going to get from from Palace on Monday we know we'll, we'll get pragmatic football uh, we'll probably get counter-attacking football at that, you know, trying to hit us from, from deep. Will it be 4-4-2? It usually is 4-4-2 under Hodgson, so it, it wouldn't be a surprise. It's not that he doesn't mix it up ever. You know, there, there are other systems that they fall into. And I, and I think in the last couple of games, games that, that they've won, he's, he's gone with one up front rather than his, his usual two. So he may stick with that. I mean, it would make sense given the way those games worked for him. But... I don't see Palace doing anything other than employing a low block and trying to hit leads on the break, but clearly that becomes more difficult minus Zaha. You know, somebody like him is, is absolutely in his pace is absolutely crucial if, if you're gonna try and, and play like that. So, you know, I think I think we can safely assume that Leeds will have a lot of the ball, have a lot of possession, they'll have a lot of territory. They will probably see a, a fair number of chances. And I think if they're clinical on Monday night, then they'll win the game. If they're if they're not or if it, it doesn't quite click, then it might well develop into one of those games where Palace have the chance to pick them off. What is a low block? Can you explain that for anybody who doesn't know what the terminology means? And by that, I mean me. Yes, well, you'll see with Bielsa's side that they employ a, a very high press, which means that you're 
you're trying to put pressure on players in the, deep in the opposition half or as deep as you can with the hope of winning the ball, turning it over and, and, and having moments of transition, as coaches like to say, which mean that you can go from defence to attack in a, in a flash. But more to the point, do it in an area where the opposition have very little time and very little space to to recover. That's often how you can you can catch them with the, the element of surprise. You get what's called a mid-block, which is where you sit much closer to, to halfway so you don't commit players off, or you don't press really, really high up the pitch, but you're still fairly positive and fairly um, aggressive in your, your position. And, 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 and essentially in, in areas where if the ball does turn over and you pick up possession, you can, you can break it at pace. A low block is what you've seen, for example, from Wolves earlier in the season. It, it worked very effectively for them, which is where you... You try to sit in and, and be very compact, not around your own box, but you know fairly deep in in your own half, behind halfway. Again, looking to counter essentially, but to do it over much longer periods of the pitch, wider areas of the pitch, and, and to do it with players who have a lot of pace. So it can work for Palace because if they're able to nick the ball around their own box or you know midway inside their own half, they can spring the trap by letting somebody like Zaha loose, you know, play him into space, let him run. And he's so quick that it's very difficult for a fullback to, to nullify him or to, to catch up with him. So that's why I expect them to do, regardless of whether Zaha's fit. I think if Zaha's fit, then they offer much more of a threat um, in those situations. If he's not, then I think the, the threat is is diminished. And as I say, I think it will be Leeds' game to dominate and a lot will depend on, on what Leeds do with the chances that fall to them. Sounds boring to me, Phil. I prefer our chaos. <laughs> <laughs> um, how's this one going to go then, Michael? I'll come to you first. Yeah, let's win. Shall we? Let's. No, I'm asking you what you think is going to happen, <laughs> not what you want to happen. What's your What's your prediction for it? I think we might win. Let's. Yes, we will win. We will win. <laughs> Sounding convinced as always. Um, what about you, Phil? Um, give us a prediction and a one to watch as well. The player, the issue, the thing, whatever it might be that we should uh, look out for on Monday, bearing in mind your fairly terrible record against uh, Leicester and Everton in the last week. Yes, well, I did pick out Harley Barnes, I think, um, at Leicester and lo and behold, he magically scored uh, the opening goal. But, yeah, I think home win, that's my my gut feeling. And the one to watch would definitely be Zaha because I think, as I say, the way they play and, and the threat they're going to pose is going to rest quite heavily on, on whether or not he features. And if he doesn't? Well, Hernandez, really. I, I, again, interested to see what happens with Hernandez and, and how he figures if you get to a point in the game again where you need somebody to... To unlock the door. It, it just, uh, it just seemed to me for the first time in a while, really. Last night seemed to me like a, a kind of Hernandez game, Hernandez moment where you might have thrown him on earlier and, and looked for him to to do something. Um, and and if we fall into that scenario again, then yeah, interested to see. Well, I brazenly predicted um, some points out of these last couple of games, so let's let's stick with that. I'm I'm feeling quite positive now, despite um, never being quite relaxed when it comes to Leeds United. Yeah, so let's go for a let's go for a home win. And you can hear more from Parag Marate. Don't forget to have a listen to that over on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. Just search for that in your podcast player. You can get this podcast ad-free with a subscription to The Athletic. And right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for that special price for 2021. It's under a quid a week. Phil Hay and a whole lot more from the world's best football writers. To enjoy The Athletic in 2021, head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pods onward we'll speak to you next time the phil hay show 